Anyway, it's uh, so good to be with the family. You know, last night after the meeting, it's, it's like the buzz just went on for such a long time. That's always a sign to me because, you know, the Lord is not only loving on you, he's opening your heart to love others. And, uh, and our connections are deepening in significant ways. And uh, the proof of that is that we just enjoy one another. And so um, how, how, why don't we stand up and welcome Dean? There you go. Thank you. Please be seated. So, I really want to get to Jacob. But I feel like the Lord kind of sovereignly hijacked things, and I don't want to ignore that. And so, Mark graciously gave me seven and a half hours tonight. No, I, um, I want to spend a little more time trying to bring at least a degree of resolution to what we discussed last night and then move on. But really, it is, these aren't two different things. The reason Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob matter is because they are so instrumental in the foundations of what God has done in the earth, they take up chapters and chapters and chapters in the very first book, and for all of Scripture and for, yea, 6,000 years, 2,000 years of the church, we have sung songs to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we still did it tonight. These are not minor characters. They literally are the ancestral roots of your faith. And so I'm, I'm going to just dig in a little bit before moving on because I think what the Lord was doing from last night to tonight is enlarging our vocabulary to appreciate Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in different ways than I was going to, but these are the generations that help us inform, help inform us, of every generation since, no less the generation that we live in. Because, and I'll get it to this probably more tomorrow, but each of them in their unique ways carry a measure of the personality of our relationship to God. He just, he talked about that relationship in a certain way with Abraham, he talked about that relationship in a certain way with Isaac, he talked about it in a certain way with Jacob. But in each of us, there's an Abrahamic response, an Isaac response, and a Jacob response to God. So, um, I'm gonna ask a couple of questions just to help keep scrambling things. The the worst part about growing up in the church is that very often it's painful to unlearn things. And there's very often quite a bit to unlearn. I, it feels just a little bit echoey up here. I'm not sure, just a little hot. Um, so without preloading this, it's, this isn't, a gotcha question, but I really want you to 
throw a couple ideas out at me. If I started out my message saying, I want you to live holy, what does live holy mean? I'm asking, it's not a rhetorical question. Be holy, live holy, set apart. What does set apart mean? Different. How? What? Always? At all times. The duration is always. What does different look like, though? What? Pureness. Pureness. That's actually what we most associate with holy is the idea of purity. Something holy is something... It, it, it's, it's like two or three generations down in the definition, but it's our most common application because to be set apart is to be unmixed, and to be unmixed is to be pure, and therefore the, the, the kind of natural gravity of religiosity, therefore, is for us to equate holiness with purity, and if our character isn't pure and our actions and our deeds and our thoughts aren't pure, then we aren't holy. Now, you can probably see where this is going a little bit relative to last night. <coughs> uh, I want you to look at Genesis 2, chapter 1. Genesis 2, verse 1. The... Uh, there's a principle in Scripture among theologians. It's called the principle of first occurrence. And, and what that means is the first time you see a word, it's instructive. The rabbis taught this. It's not a Christian theology. It's a Jewish theology that Christian theology embraces. The first time a word is said, it is foundational to every other use of the word. The context, the placement, the circumstances, the, the, the meaning, first occurrence of key words is meant to inform the way we understand every other use of that word or concept in scripture. So here we have the first occurrence. Now, depending on your translation, it's going to either say sanctified or made holy. And that is because in Hebrew, holy is the noun form of the same word that the verb sanctify. sanctify to sanctify something is to make it holy, and if something is holy, it is because it has been sanctified. It's the noun and the verb form, so they are theologically interchangeable. What we have here is the verb form, but depending on your translation, in ESV, uh, verse 3. Well, actually, we'll start in verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts, and on the seventh day God finished the work that he had done and rested from all the work that he had done. Verse 3, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. If you have NIV or New American Standard, it might say sanctified it. He blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Same thing. He blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now here is a real problem 
for our practical daily application of striving to be holy, meaning pure from sin. And that is, God des designated something holy that had no reference to sin. A day comes along and it's one of several perfect days where God is doing everything that is in his heart to do and then he rests from his work and because he rested from his work, he said this day is holy. And holy is the, the best definition is other than. It's where we get the idea of set apart and trickle down to purity. But because we have grown up in a performance mindset, because we have grown up with layers and layers of sin management, because we have grown up conditioned to respond to myself, to God, and to you based on how you're doing and how I'm doing and how what I'm doing makes me feel and how what you're doing makes me feel and do you, are you doing the thing that looks pure and seems pure or does it seem sinful and unrighteous and if I do that, I feel condemned and I don't wanna feel condemned, therefore I want to get back to doing pure things. And yet, the very first time is God himself saying, this thing is holy and there is no reference point to sinful behavior, sinful thoughts, actions, deeds, sin, period. So how are we going to establish what holiness is relative to sin in our own lives if that's not where it starts? What made it holy? What part was God's and what part was man's? And the answer is everything and nothing. What made it holy had everything to do with what God had done and had stopped doing and therefore declared this is a different kind of day because the work has stopped. It's a set-apart day where I declare my work is finished and in the setting apart of that, I am imbuing this and recognizing and establishing that my finished work makes this holy. And nothing about human effort or human achievement or perfection enters into this equation. So how are you gonna be holy? Don't answer yet. But it's not what you've thought. Sometimes this little swipe gesture on the iPad works. <laughs> Sometimes it doesn't. Isaiah 51. Verse one, I love it that we just sang this. O rock, O rock of ages, I'm standing on your faithfulness. 
beautiful. The Lord inspired that song of choice. Because Isaiah 51 asks a question. Listen, Isaiah says. Now, Isaiah is writing as a prophet under the law. He says, listen, you who seek righteousness. Okay, question, how many in this room seek righteousness? I'm, I'm, I'm looking to see who's not raising their hands. <laughs> you are in trouble. No, of course, everyone, we're seeking right. You, listen, okay, if you seek righteousness, Isaiah 51 is talking to you. Listen, you who seek righteousness, you who uh, seek the Lord. Okay, if you're seeking righteousness, if you're seeking the Lord, God, I want to please you. God, I want to live holy. God, I want to live righteous. God, I want to be in fellowship with you, submitted to you. I'm seeking those things. Okay, look to the rock from which you were hewn. O rock, O rock of ages. I'm standing on your faith. That could have been taken straight from Isaiah 51, verses 1 and 2, because it says if you're seeking righteousness and you're seeking the Lord, then look to the rock from which you were hewn, to the quarry from which you were dug. In other words, get down to the, the cornerstone, get down to the, the, the foundation upon which everything else is built. And what is that rock? What is that foundation? He says, look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, your mother. Now, why would the most anointed prophet under the law not say, look to Moses so you can clean up your act and finally start doing what you need to do? He says, if you really want to get down to the righteousness God is looking for, you got to go past Moses all the way back to Abraham, your father. Why? Well, okay, last night we looked at righteousness, covenant, holy, sanctification. These are all words that have become familiar to the point of numbness in our vocabulary. We open up the Bible, it's the Old Testament and the New Testament, and if you know what testament is in Latin, you know that's Old Covenant, New Covenant. It's all over. And you see God talking about covenant a lot. And so it's like, anywhere the word covenant is, it must all be the same thing. And we don't understand how fundamental how committed God is, he doesn't do anything outside of covenant. He is a covenantal God. And so you can't understand righteousness unless you understand covenant because righteousness is a theological concept that does not mean how rightly are you living. It means how right do you stand in relation to the terms of the covenant. Righteousness is related to covenant, the, the satisfaction of the covenant. So to have a right relationship with God, a righteous relationship with God under Moses involved the terms of that covenant. 
I went over, you can, you can draw a dividing line. I won't go too much over it again tonight, but I will repeat for emphasis. If you look from the emancipation from Egypt, all the miracles and all the provision, and you reread the story and you see all the patience. Now, the way the story is written, broken up in Exodus and then some parts in Numbers and some parts in Deuteronomy and then some parts commented on in the Psalms and in the prophets, it takes a little bit of, of uh, overlapping the timelines to see what is happening when, prior to Sinai and after Sinai. Part of the problem is it's not immediately apparent if you just read the account in Exodus. But if you put it all together and you look at what happened up to Sinai and what happened after, is they messed up and complained and sinned in multiple ways and God patiently dealt with them even as he patiently dealt with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because the covenant he made with Abraham was one that Abraham responded to in faith and that covenant, under the terms of that covenant, faith was accounted as righteousness. So under Abraham's covenant, the terms of righteousness are not what do you do, but do you believe? Now, if you backfill with all kinds of ideas about what righteousness is, just like you backfill with all kinds of ideas about what holiness is, and the trickle down to purity and therefore the manifestations of purity, you can get into multiple arguments with yourself because we're conditioned to think about righteousness as a series of things we demonstrate rather than how we are responding to the covenant. Under Abraham, God patiently dealt with while he was working. It was a, it was a relational process. How many are fathers in here? Okay, I'm going to talk to the fathers in particular. You remember when you're children were two years old at that toddling stage. You know, with your first one, you can't wait for them to stand and walk because that's like the, the big achievement. With your second, you're kind of interested. But by your third, you know all the problems that come with that. And so when they start to stand up, you push them down, right? <laughs> like, well, we aren't ready for these problems yet. I'm not going to celebrate that victory right now. Keep crawling for a while. There's the, every piece of furniture is forehead height and all the stuff. But when they're starting to walk, you know, they, they help themselves up and you're standing right there and they're, you know, in this, they don't have the coordination, the dexterity, the muscle tone or control or strength and every step is this painful, glorious, possible failure. And you're there and you're like, come on. You know, you're here and you're like, come on, come on, come on. And they take that step and you might even move back a little bit, right? Make them take an extra step, an extra step. And at some point, they fall. Now, how many of you all will say a loud, hearty amen to the angry, scolding, you fool, you dummy, how could you 
fail and fall. If you're going to come to me, come to me on my terms. No, a relationship from the heart of a father in love with his son scoops him up in what might as well be called unrighteousness, unholiness, and sin. It is a failure of his capacity to reach me. But I just scoop him up and raise him in the air and twirl around and go, that was so good! Wow! Your first step, your first three steps. Now let's do five steps. Now let's do ten steps. Look at you go. That is in the midst of failure, at a baby's level, you have to call that failing the standard of someone who can walk. But we talk all the time about our walk with God. And we live in the constant conviction that every time I drop like that, fail like that, even in a hardened state of rebellion and sin, that God is venting his anger, comes over, puts his heel on us and says, you're getting exactly what you deserve. Rather than a relational dynamic with a God who is good all the time. Yeah. Fundamentally good, never anything but good from the beginning to the end. That's the rest of the song. He never changes. See, what the law does is bring accusation to your heart that God isn't really good. That his goodness, his willingness, he might love you because he has to, but most of the time he doesn't like you. And the law convinces you of that because it brings condemnation where your feelings validate a perspective of God that's not true. But when you live by faith, that relational process is not excusing any one of the falls. But he's there to lift you up each time and produce a different kind of confidence in who he is and a confidence in your own ability to walk. So all the way up until Sinai, God was treating the children of Israel out of that patience, out of that goodness, because that was the deal he made with Abraham. And after Sinai, they do many of the same things. But now it looks like God is angry and vengeful and capricious and arbitrary. The golden calf. I mean, the ink is dry, just barely, not even dry on the New Deal. And he tells Moses, leave me alone so I can destroy them. People complain. He brings them quail, but they die by plague. I told you, the man picks up sticks on the Sabbath. Moses says, okay, we had another Sabbath violation before. God didn't do anything. Now what? New deal, kill him. Rebellion of Korah, 15,000 burned with fire. Miriam murmurs against Moses. She gets leprosy. They worshiped Baal at Peor. 24,000 die. 
Ten spies bring up back a bad report and an entire generation will wander in the wilderness and die for 40 years. God, what happened? You changed. No. Same good God, same essential character, but after laboring to establish with mighty miracles, you are my chosen people, and bringing them through a series of early crises with kindness and patience, and they refuse to relate to him the way he wants to relate to them, it's just too hard to live in that posture of faith. He said, okay, let's go make a new deal. I'm not going to relate to you anymore out of a perpetual mindset of blessing based on your faith because you've proven you won't relate to me in faith. So I'm going to codify a series of rules and if you do the rules, you'll be blessed and if you don't do the rules, you'll be cursed. And from that moment on, literally on the way down the mountain, everything in the, in the Jewish history is a testament to the constancy of God to be faithful to his covenant. And here's part of what we're meant to extract from that. Not that God is double-minded, but that God is so single-minded, if we could ever get back to the other deal, he would be faithful to that also. So look at Hebrews 8. Hebrews 8. I really don't know that I am going to get to Jacob, but <laughs> oh boy. Hebrews 8. Uh, let's start at verse 6. Hebrews 8 6. As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Okay, so if God was willing to be faithful in the extreme to a covenant that caused his people anguish, but they made it in good faith together and he was committed to the truth of those terms where they chose to perform for his favor rather than to receive his blessing. And he stuck with it, but all along he keeps whispering through the prophets, I've got a better deal coming. This thing isn't working. It's not sustainable. You can't be transformed by it. So I'm going to send one who can satisfy everything that now humanity is under the requirement of the deal the Jewish nation chose. But he's going to fix it so it's no longer just the Jews who can relate to him. Actually, all nations can. 
And so Christ has this better ministry. It's more excellent. And see, we have this reverence for the law that is almost more reverential in our heart than for the ministry of Christ. It's somehow literally a sacred cow. It's no accident that he got the law and they start worshiping a sacred cow because the law has become that to all of us. But he says, actually, this thing that Christ is doing, the ministry he has, it's more excellent than the old because the covenant he mediates is better because it's enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, wait a second, how could a covenant that God established be faulty? But if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. But he finds fault, and it'll, some Bibles will say with them or with it. And scholars say it can go either way because the net effect is the same. That first covenant was faulty because it placed the people in perpetual fault with him. And so whether the covenant was faulty, which the previous verse draws out more than some translations, which then say he finds fault either with the people because they can't keep it or with the covenant because it's impossible to keep. He says, that's why, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'm going to change everything. And we're going to get back to the kind of relational dynamic that I created humanity for in the first place. I never wanted to relate to you according to a set of rules that if you perform them, you got my pleasure. I created you because I started you with my pleasure. Adam's first full day, created on the sixth day, goes to sleep, wakes up. His first full day is in the rest of God. Adam was born into a holy state because he did nothing but enter the rest of God. So, you got seven more hours. <laughs> God instituted the law, instigated the law as a necessity, not a preference. In fact, if you read and put different verses together, more than I can do, but throughout Hebrews here, and especially 8, 9, 10, we're going to look at 10 in a minute, you see... He calls the law faulty, and he doesn't necessarily like it. Why? Because it puts him in the position of having to give that which is most valuable to atone for people that will assuredly break that law. From the very beginning, plan A, lamb was slain before the foundation of the world because God had to set in motion a series of events Love is not love unless it can be chosen. That's why the tree had to be there. But the system was such that they were guaranteed to fail because the, the starting terms were perform. 
So they did. They failed. And that puts in motion the wisdom of God beyond all understanding. And I can only hint at this here, but I'm going to tell you the reason he did this is because he had an exalted uh, created being with more access to him than any other being until scripture says pride was found in him. Speaking of Lucifer, which that's not really his name, but it works because we all know it. And that's what we think it is. Lucifer had the privileged position nearer to the Godhead than any other created being. He was more beautiful. He was matchless. He was stunning. He was powerful. And he was proud. And so in the fall of Lucifer, we see God create another instead of a creature of jewels and beauty and stunning power. This is a creature of mud. But it's destined to actually not just be close to the throne, but sit on the throne. It's destined to be bejeweled as a bride, even with similar language and descriptions as what is given to Lucifer, the bride is going to be everything he was and more, a companion actually seated on the throne in matchless splendor, co-reigning with Christ forever. And he says, I am going to assure that no pride will ever be found in her. And so it says in Romans 8, the whole earth was subjected to futility. Why? It is futile to have to perform for God, so that's where we're going to start. Because you're going to be made in my image, and immediately you're going to know the danger and risk of ever separating yourself from intimate connection to me. Now, as soon as you do it, I've already got the plan for the rescue. And so all of history is going to be putting in place the rescue plan. And I'm going to have a moment with a man who responds to me in faith where I can remind everyone, this is what I like. But generations down the line, they're going to be broken in slavery and sin, which is what Egypt typifies. And so I'm going to rescue them because I love them. And this is my love for all of humanity. And that's unchanging. But they aren't going to stay in the faith of that man. So I need to expose them to futility again. And the law comes like shackles, like a heavy burden, like a weight we cannot bear. And yet, everything in us associated with our pride, see, pride is the anointing of Satan. I said that last night. Guess what Adam and Eve got baptized in when they chose to follow the serpent? They got baptized in his pride, and that pride is exactly what God is patiently rooting out of all of humanity. So, the law, if you really talk about this just as bluntly as I'm trying to, and if you touch on this Law, grace, dynamic, old covenant, new covenant. We've got our sacred cows so much. This kind of conversation brings out the Pharisee in all of us. Because if I start to suggest that 
Fidelity to the law is not the measuring stick for God's righteousness under Christ. Then something kind of bows up in us and we're like, well, wait a second. The phrase greasy grace and all this stuff starts to come out. Listen, most of the problem is not that people are preaching too much grace. They aren't preaching nearly enough. Well, that went down like a rat sandwich. <laughs> did, did I mention something bows up inside of us? It's the pride thing that says, no, I really can't do it. It's exactly what happened to Israel when they were given that choice. We will do this. Now, they had just made a series of decisions to tell Moses, we can't actually stand to be near God. The mountain was quaking. The trumpet sound of God was terrifying them. And they're like, Moses, you go talk to God for us. Everything about it was a series of separations from their life source. Moses was the mediator. The covenant no longer depended, uh, uh, made them uh, dependent on God within as their life, but to an external standard without. And so if we touch that thing that says the external standard isn't what God wants, we start to get all the red flags and the warnings. Well, you're just preaching license and greasy grace. Listen, J Titus, Paul told Titus, the grace of God has been revealed. Let me say that again. The grace of God has been revealed, teaching us to renounce ungodliness. You think you just need enough grace to get by? You need buckets of grace every day. If you aren't renouncing ungodliness, the answer is not to return to the law to figure out how to try harder and prove something to God, it is to say, you who seek righteousness, go back to Abraham's deal. Believe that he produces something in you and out of the overflow of that, you will live more holy accidentally than you ever did on purpose. And so that grace is a tool to cause us to renounce ungodliness. You've heard the warnings about hypergrace. Do you know where that phrase comes from? It's Romans 5. In Romans 5, it says, in the context of our sinful transformation, it says, he will make grace abound all the more. It's exceedingly abound. It's aboundingly abound. And so to emphasize the aboundingly abound, it is hooper grace. It's the Greek word that we get hyperspeed, hyperactive. You have a hyperactive child. What's happening? He's always busy doing something. Do you want passive lethargic grace? Or do you want hyper grace <laughs> teaching you to renounce ungodliness? There is a crossing over of thresholds where we have got to get past our religiosity. Jesus died to tear the veil and, and religion wants to stitch it up again. We 
fail and fall, and in the discouragement of condemnation, we think there's a veil where there is no veil. Grace, with a perfectly good father, says, let's get up and keep going because you're still welcome here. There's nothing you have to prove to get here. I sent my son a better priest, a better prophet, a better message, a better ministry, a better covenant on better promises so that you don't have to be better. He did all the better stuff for you and now you stand on him, rest in him. The holiness of the Sabbath becomes a reality from the inside out, not a day on the week. And you possess something in measures of grace where the law becomes exactly what it was always meant to be. Thou shalt not sin. Thou shalt not. It's the, the pointing finger that demands compliance. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not covet. In Christ, with grace teaching us godliness, and he actually recreates us from the inside out, we are no longer dead in sin. We are dead to sin. <laughs> And now the Ten Commandments becomes a promise. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not steal. Why? Because you've got the Holy One in the Holy Spirit inside you living out His perfect triumph. The new covenant has zero to do with your faithfulness. And that's why he enacted it on a better promise. It's why he could promise Abraham under the terms of this covenant, you will be a blessing to all nations. Because it wasn't dependent on man's faithfulness. It was dependent on God's unilateral commitment to that man's faith. When it says it was counted to him as righteousness, it's in Genesis 15. And you have three main chapters, Genesis 12, 15, and 17, that are the progression of the covenant. It starts in 12. He's called out of Ur of the Chaldees. He responds in faith. He keeps responding in faith. But when the covenant is actually cut, you know the cutting of the covenant, right? The cutting of the covenant, you've probably heard teachings on this. Uh, the practice of the day was... A, they were called suzerains. It was basically the chief, the, the sheikh, the king, the whatever the top dog was of a particular clan or tribe or even empire. If he wanted to make a treaty or cut covenant, the big dog would find a partner in a little dog. And the little guy didn't have much to give accept his pledge of loyalty. But he got protection and favor. You know, if he was coming under attack by another little dog, the big dog would come and help him if they were in covenant together. The, the big guy had very little to gain. 
the little guy has everything to gain. But they cut a covenant, and what they would do is they would cut animals in half, ox and sheep and turtle doves and all kinds of animals, and they would push the two halves apart, and you can just imagine this incredibly gory scene where there's a trough of blood between the two halves. And the two men, they would, prior, they would recite the terms of their pledge to one another. This is covenant architecture. If you do this, I will do this. If you do this, I will do this. If you do not do this, you will not get this. If you do not do this, I will do this. They would recite the terms. It's the superior dictating the terms and the inferior agreeing to the terms. And it was language like you read in Deuteronomy 29. May it be to me, basically that was the point of this, if I do not fulfill my covenant to you both ways, and then they would walk through, let it be to me as the fate of these animals. Let my life be torn apart. Let me literally be disemboweled. Let my wife and children be given to strangers. Let all these kinds of oaths and imprecations and, and terrible stuff, and then they would seal it with the blood of animals that had been slain to bear witness, this is life and death serious, and the blood would soak in, and by the end, they were covenanted one to another. They would walk through it together. That's what cutting covenant means. So now we get to Genesis 15 when God is going to act on the covenant that he pledged to Abram in chapter 12. Some time has passed and now they're going to cut covenant. And here's what happens. <laughs> Abraham goes like this. Literally, God puts Abraham to sleep. He's out of the picture. And God stands at the trough of the blood that he himself will provide. And he says, this deal is up to me. You could never do it from the beginning. That's what I've been trying to tell you. You dared to believe I was good and I would keep my word with you. I'm about to show you how good I am and how good my word is. Go take your Sabbath. Enter my rest. What part is God's and what part is man's? All God's, none of man's. So Abraham, you just lay there and we're going to form a new creation and I am going to take the sole responsibility and pay the price for your exaltation thousands of years of this journey and we're still mixing the story. We're still grooming disciples with a mindset of performance and wondering why the body of Christ has never moved 
into the maturity of Ephesians 4. Look at Hebrews 8. I'm going to wrap up here in a minute. Jacob is just, he's tomorrow. <laughs> Hebrews 8. Poor Jacob. Sorry, Hebrews 10. We already looked at Hebrews 8. Hebrews 10, I'm going to read several verses, starting in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come, instead of the true form, every one of these words matters. If the law is a shadow, if you can go on a date with the prettiest girl's shadow, or the real, living, beautiful woman can sit in your car and you go have a meal and you talk to each other. Which is the better deal? And yet we are raising anemic disciples on the thin two-dimensional shape. Look, you all can't see it because you're not the right angle. I can look at this shadow. That light is casting an angle on this and there's this round disc and a stem and I could, if I didn't know that, I could look at that and go, that's some sort of table or a giant lollipop or... <laughs> and that's just it. The shadow bears the form of the thing but you aren't actually sure. If I couldn't see that and I just had that, is that a table, is it a giant lollipop, is it a balloon? What is the form and the substance of this God of covenant? Right here. Right here. It's, it, it, the law had the shadow, but the true form of these realities is something vastly superior. And it can never, the law can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Wait, they're drawing near. Isn't that what we want? The law actually permitted a drawing near. So if all we want to do is draw near, we can still do that in part through the law in a shadowy sort of way. The question is, why isn't that drawing near the same as a better drawing near? Because it's a shadow and it's not the substance. So it can never by those same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Jesus said, be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. Do you want to be perfect? Then the way we've been doing it for 2,000 years of church history isn't cutting it because we have not yet moved to realms of maturity and perfection that characterize the Jacob generation. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be all, listened to the writer of Hebrews logic? I'm going to read it all, and then I'll, I'll stop trying to interject on myself. Otherwise, so if, if the way the law worked, <laughs> I just did it. It was that easy. If you all hadn't laughed, I would have kept going. Okay. <laughs> I can do it. I can do it. 
true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? What? The sacrifices. Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a remembrance of sin every year. Because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but you prepared a body for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you haven't taken pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. And when he said, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law, and then added, behold, I have come to do your will, we have to see that what he does is do away with the first in order to establish the second. Let me say that differently. He establishes the second by doing away with the first. So that by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Here's the picture of what that's saying. You can go down and break it down yourself later. In the law, there was a way for a sinful people who were not being granted righteousness by faith, but by performance. So now their performance is guaranteed to be ugly and sinful. Because there's not a blessing to be received, but a, um, a status to be achieved. So that's the deal, which means the nation was damned to eternal separation from God unless he made a way within that system, according to that covenant, for them to draw near. And that meant that they had to sacrifice... And the sacrifice brought a kind of drawing near, a shadow of drawing near, but it specifies it never actually perfected them, and the blood of bulls and goats never forgave sin. What we see is the idea of like if you work at a, a certain kind of job and you take a draw on your salary, you're going to get paid on Friday, but you got bills on Monday. And so you go to your boss and you say, can I take a draw on my salary? The blood of bulls and goats had no efficacy on its own. It didn't transform the, the person and it didn't perfect them. But it was a draw on a future reality. And so God acknowledged out of the infinite resources of his son's future sacrifice, this blood will speak as a type and shadow under the law to provide a measure of what will only be realized in full with him. The law is a picture and it's part of the system where every single, and he goes into this in other verses, every single sacrifice was inferior to the sin. That's why it couldn't actually atone for it or forgive it. It could just cause God's wrath to look away. Every sacrifice, the sacrifice wasn't truly, it couldn't choose the sacrifice and the form of life was inferior. So every sacrifice was inferior to the sin. It wasn't until the man Christ Jesus, God man, that you had a sacrifice infinitely superior to the sum total of human sin. And so, he says, when Jesus comes, his confession is, God, 
That's not what you really wanted. And then he says, and I came to do your will. And the, the writer of Hebrews is exegeting for us. Here's what he means by saying, you don't want the sacrifice, and therefore I came to do your will. Jesus came to render the law obsolete. To establish the second of his superior ministry, he was willing to do away with the first. And we've looked at the verses that say why. It's because it was faulty. It was because it required a standard of performance that it provided no power to create in you. Now I can, I can feel the, wait, you're saying the law is, wait, what? <laughs> Go back to Hebrews 8. It says the law is obsolete and ready to be done away with. It's not gone. It's still there. It's just an inferior system for you to live righteous before God. Imagine going to NASA for the, the inaugural uh, manned launch to Mars. The most high-tech, incredible human enterprise in history. And you get a visitor's pass into the control room. I'm almost done. You get a visitor's pass into the control room. And you are expecting to see, I mean, just wall to wall, you know, as big as this, bigger than this. And it's massive screens and high-tech gear and stuff that's not on the market for 10 more years. And the latest, greatest cutting edge technology and you get in there and there's 10 guys feverishly smoking cigarettes with an Atari joystick being like oh gosh I hope we can I hope we can land it are y'all old enough to know what an Atari joystick is <laughs> what would you say you would say there's such a better way let me run to Best Buy what you're using may get the job done, but it's obsolete. And Jesus came to show us you don't have to relate to God that way anymore. I'm going to do everything you can't because I'm going to raise a bride in humility who is so dependent on me that she will be perfected in her humility as my spirit shines through her more and more. And at the end of time, that beautiful woman is going to sit on a throne with me. And I'm committed to that destiny for her. And this is the better. It's not just the better way. It's the only way we're going to get there. And we have got once and for all a generational chance to say, I'm not going to play the old game anymore that has been played for thousands of years. It's why Paul says in Galatians, the law doesn't make anything perfect. And it's why he says, if you follow the Spirit, you aren't under the law. Let's stand. Jacob, forgive us from the cloud of witnesses. We're coming back to you, buddy. All right, let's just, you know, the last thing I want is for us to now be like, oh God, oh God, oh God, help me do this. No, let's have our own little Sabbath moment here. We're just gonna stretch out our hands. I'm not going to 
come by and touch you on the head and maybe you fall down and maybe you don't and this isn't between anyone but you and a father who loves to pick you up when you fall, loves to adorn you with eternal jewels, loves to love you as you are and refuses to leave you where you are. He can't love you more, he will not love you less and everything he does for you is good. And so God, that's our, that's our sweet spot. Let us enter your rest. Let us be in that space, that, time, that nexus of time and space that you call holy, where everything we know is you. We receive. We ask, we believe, and we receive. We receive the gift of righteousness. We receive the filling of the Spirit. We receive in fresh ways the faith of our father Abraham. And yet we know this is even so much better than that. Holy Spirit, move in this room. Secure something in our hearts seed on good soil that the enemy cannot take from us. We trust you to do above and beyond all we could ask or think. And we thank you in advance that you are at work within us both to do and to will your good pleasure. And so in those places where we're hesitant or reserved or stubborn and we aren't willing, we say we're willing to be made willing because I would rather have you change me from the inside out than for me just to sh change from the outside. Receive. You just receive. You can just tell him, thank you. I don't even know it all. I don't even get it all. I just receive. I receive. I thank you. I, I want to live in this. I want to grow in it. Amen. Amen. Well, that was a mouthful, eh? Lot, lots of stuff. You know, if you don't remember everything, that's okay, because you receive truth with your heart, with your spirit. And the information, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll make sense if you receive. Let the seed of this truth, grab a hold of that. Just grab a hold of, I believe this.